You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with us. Spring has sprung. Now, I don't know if that's actually true. We're probably going to see more winter before this is over. All I can tell you is for about a week there, we thought we were going to die. It was so unbelievably cold, and they say it's going to be in the 50s today and 60s tomorrow, which is like a new lease on life. We were gone last week, which is why there was no podcast. We were in southern Missouri, uh, staying at a cabin with our kids for a couple of days, and while we were down there, the power went out to the cabin. Well, not the power, just the heat. We had electricity, but we didn't have heat. And I thought, well, we'll start a fire and we'll kind of tough it out. And uh, they had supplied us with this firewood that was just almost inflammable. It was impossible to keep a fire roaring. We had one going, but I wouldn't call it roaring. And the temperature started to drop and drop and drop. It got down to 51 degrees in the cabin, which I understand one can live in 51 degree weather. But it had gone from 66 to 51 in about an hour, which meant we were about two hours from certain death. I may be a little bit exaggerating there, but it was cold. It was very cold. They managed to get in, fix it, and uh, we had a great time. Had a really good time away with the kids, but we are glad to be back. Glad to be back with the bridge on Sunday. I was there online uh, from southern Missouri last week, but be glad to be back here and doing it from home. Uh, We talked a little bit yesterday about the idea of being obedient to Jesus and what he expects and in what order he expects it. This is from Sunday morning at the bridge. Stay with us. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 6, where uh, we're going to read a few verses just to get started. For context here, Jesus is teaching to a large group of people. We don't know how many, it could be hundreds, could be thousands, but they've gathered him to him for healing. And Luke, the doctor, uses an interesting phrase here. He says, power is coming out of him. I love that that's the best way that Luke, the doctor, he's like, I don't know how to explain it. All I know is like waves of power are radiating out of Jesus and people are being healed. And Jesus turns his focus from healing and begins to make a series of very hard statements for people. He talks about loving their enemies. He talks about not judging other people. And I can imagine there were people who were like, I just came to get healed. I didn't come for a sermon. You know, they can hear the music of the clash in the background. Should I stay or should I go? Because this is not what they came to listen to. And yet he is speaking in a very strong way to those who have come and sought healing. In Luke 6, 46 to 49, he starts out. He's like, so why do you call me Lord, Lord? You don't do what I tell you to do how awkward is this? Well, like, was it not enough that we followed you? Was it not enough that we came out here in the boonies to find you? Yet you say that we call you Lord, Lord, and we don't follow you. We don't actually do what you say to do. Jesus was kind. Jesus was loving. Jesus was full of grace, but Jesus had the very real expectation of obedience. And he goes on in verse 47, he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them, the one who hears my words and doesn't doesn't obey, is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. 
when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus is laying out the idea that the foundation for a house or family or a life that will last is built on obedience to him, and he is contrasting it with another house that looks exactly the same at first glance, but cannot withstand the, the torrent of life that comes against it. I was talking to a friend in ministry a couple of, uh, of days ago, and we were laughing about uh, they've got this good Midwestern mom that every time something happens, their mom tells them, well, it's always something like that's her response to any crisis. Well, it's always something. In this case, somebody had veered off the road and hit my friend's car that was sitting in the driveway and totaled their car. And they called their mom, said, yeah, my, my car got totaled. And her mom you know, on cue. Well, it's always something. And that's funny. But it's true. Mama's right. It is always something. And those somethings pile up. And sometimes those somethings are much heavier and much worse than a wrecked car or a missed appointment. Sometimes those things involve great pain or struggle because in the words of Mama, it's always something. When it's something, what makes one house stand firm while another one shakes and is actually moved from where it is built? Jesus said, everybody that comes to me and hears my words and does them... I will show you what he's like. And then he describes a house that could withstand whatever happened because it's always something. When it's something, our obedience to the Lord is normally the determining factor in whether or not we stand or we crumble. And the more obedient we have been leading up to the event, the more likely we can stand firm through that event. 1943, a frustrated psychology professor uh, was was thinking about the idea that people would come to him with what he called their grocery bag of needs. And they would, they would sort out all of the things they need. He would ask them about their problems. They'd just pull one thing after another out of the bag. And he realized that not all these problems and not all these needs were equal. And uh, his name was Abraham Maslow. So to help people sort out their grocery bag of needs, he came up with what we know as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you uh, did uh, college psychology or college philosophy, you're probably familiar with this. He, it's displayed most often as a pyramid. And he said, our certain needs are like this. We have physiological needs. Got to have food, got to have water, got to have shelter. If you don't have those three things, the rest of the stuff in your grocery bag don't really matter. Then you need safety. You've got to have security and stability. Then if you've got food and water and security and stability, then you can think about needing things like belonging and love. And if you've got food and water and security and belonging and love, then you can think about things like prestige. And then at the top of his pyramid, he had this thing called self-actualization or becoming all that you can become. You cannot become all that you want to become if you don't have all of these things. Maslow was concerned with the earthly needs of men and women, real and perceived needs. But if a man lives his life with only the first level covered, or he achieves the fifth level of those hierarchy of needs, the interesting thing happens is when they die, the body cools to the same temperature. Like it doesn't really matter what level they've achieved according to Maslow's needs. When It's not an eternal thing. It's just a, a life thing. God is concerned with the eternal needs of men and women, and he knows the thing that you need the most is obedience. 
what did Jesus say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. So instead of Maslow's hierarchy of needs this morning, I want you to think a little bit about what I would call God's hierarchy of obedience. I find that there are a lot of people who love Jesus and they want to obey, but they don't know what to do next. And there are other people who are struggling with obedience because they're pulling all of the things out of their grocery bag and they don't know where to start. So let me just give you this as a tool so that you say, okay, I know what I've said yes to. I know what I've said no to. I know what I need to do next because mom is right. It's always something. Level one on this idea of the hierarchy I needs. This is where everybody starts. Your obedience to his call. I'm not talking about a call to ministry or a call to activity. It is a call to salvation and devotion to the Lord. This is the call Jesus issued to members of the fellowship of Laodicea. They were, they were some of the most um, uh, worldly of the churches that were described in the book of Revelation. And in the revelation of Jesus, he issues this call to them in Revelation 3.20. He said, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and I will eat with him and he with me. If you obey, you open the door and two things happen. First, we surrender our sin to Jesus who's at the door. He says to repent. To repent means to turn, to turn away from your sin. You cannot maintain your life of sin and obey the call to open the door. He asks you to surrender, which is the only way you will rid yourself of your sin. It is the best trade you will ever make in your life. My kids are into trading. And so they'll gather all of their things that they don't really want very much. And they'll try and trade with their brothers and sisters for things that they want. And sometimes these trades go well. Sometimes they, they go poorly. This is the best trade you will ever make in your life. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. For those that hear Jesus knocking... Maybe a friend presents the gospel or they're reading the Bible or the Lord reveals to himself to them somehow. They hear him knocking and they go and they answer the door. They reach that for that latch with just a little bit of, of an element of apprehension because they know they're unprepared for his presence and they have earned death like they worked for it. The Bible calls it wages. What, what are the things that you get wages for? It's like I earned this. And he offers to trade us our wages for a free gift, but it's precipitated by our obedience to opening the door. Now, the second part of that baseline obedience, that first level of answering the call, quickly follows that. First, we surrender our sin. Second of all, we pledge our commitment to Jesus. A lot of people have opened the door, tried to negotiate the trade of their wages for the gift that he brings, and then tried to shut the door before Jesus can get in and sit down. It's like they would like Jesus to do the DoorDash thing, drop something off, and he's like, no, 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 I'm coming in to sit down. I'm coming in to be a part of your life. According to Revelation, he came to abide with us. Jesus doesn't knock to deliver a fruitcake. He knocks to move in and drive out every demon thing that vies for your affection and your attention. When God issued the Ten Commandments, he started out with this idea of baseline obedience. I can almost imagine him going, yeah, I don't know that I need to say this, but I probably do. And I, if I'm making Ten Commandments, I need to make it the first commandment. 
Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm just going to put it up front. Jesus is kind. Jesus is full of grace. Jesus is loving. But Jesus doesn't share. In Isaiah 42, God spells it out on behalf of his son. He said, I will not give my glory to another. One of the quickest off-ramps to a life of obedience is to pretend we're obeying God while we are giving our affection that he deserves to other things or other people. Jesus doesn't share. In, uh, I don't know, the mid-2000s, it's been a long time back, I was uh, interviewed by a woman named Lee Gilmore. She's a religious professor from San Jose State. She's not a follower of Jesus, but she was writing a book about comparative religions in the world of artists. And the title of the book was called Theater in a Crowded Fire, which I thought was a great title, even if I, I didn't buy anything that she was saying. Uh, but she wanted to talk to me because I was interested in artists and I love art. And she asked me what issues people might have with my God, because she was speaking to people from so many different faith backgrounds. And I said, exclusivity. She said, Jesus excludes people. I said, no, no, no. I'm just saying Jesus doesn't group date. He deserves and demands our affection and our attention, and he will not allow you to be a Christian and a Muslim at the same time. He will not allow you to be a Christian or, and a Hindu at the same time. He will not allow you to be a Christian and a person who is primarily fulfilled by the level of their 401k and their career. Jesus demands that if you obey his call, you put him first. That first tier of obedience to Jesus will be begin to build a strong house for you, but it involves surrendering your sin and pledging your full commitment to him. These are things that establish your identity and your relationship with him. You get this right. You get sonship or daughtership. You go from being a slave to be a, being a family member, but that establishing relationship is not the fullness of knowing God. It's like a paternity test. It identifies who your father is, but there is more to knowing him than just surrendering to him. To flesh out the relationship and your fulfillment in Jesus, you've got to climb higher in the hierarchy of obedience. If you've known Jesus for a year, you should be being obedient in ways you were not obedient to him when you first met him. John 15, 10 and 11 says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be complete in you and your joy may be full. How do you find full joy and full completeness in Jesus? In obeying beyond just answering the call to being saved. If surrender and worship are the baseline of the hierarchy of obedience to Jesus, what comes next? Second level obedience or your obedience to his word. Your obedience to his written word. This manifests in our reading the Bible and putting it to use. There is no other figure in world religions who has presented his followers with as rich a resource as the Bible as we have it. Understand that as I am saying, I'm talking about false gods. My point here is there's nothing in other world religions like the Bible. Um, if you have done any college classes in the last few years, you know that the latest rage in, in college classes are this thing called group projects. And uh, they're terrible. 
I mean, that's a vast generalization, but they're just kind of terrible. Group projects, in the beginning meeting of the group project, it becomes very quickly established who in the group is going to do the project because it's very hard for everyone to do it. And usually one person's going, I'm going to drag the rest of your sorry hind ends across the finish line to get an A because I am not. <laughs> There's always a guy going, I'd be happy with a B. No, we're going for the A, which means one person has got to do it. Rachel's saying she's in a group project right now. Yeah, you get it, Rachel. You get it. The Bible is the most unlikely group project, and yet it turned out amazing. 66 different books, 40 different authors, written over 1,500 years, and yet has been applicable to every person in history, and there are no contradictions. There may be some confusion over minor translation differences or misunderstanding of context. For example, Bible critics like to pull out small sections that seem to discredit scripture or contradict each other they'll say things oh yeah 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 what about proverbs 26 4 and 5 and if you read those they seem to contradict they say answer a fool i'm sorry answer not a fool according to his folly lest you be like him then the next verse says answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes you read that and you go well it seems to contradict each other here so one, here one says answer one says not is the lesson specifically how to deal with fools no the lesson of those two verses is different fools different rules you have to interpret people's needs and you have to respond to them accordingly the wisdom of god shows you which of those two rules to implement there are passages like that, but for the most part, the vast swath of Scripture is very clear. Our issue with the Bible is not a lack of understanding. It's a lack of execution. Most people who complain about those parts of the Bible they don't understand are vastly aware of other parts of the Bible they do understand that they're trying not to follow. There is very little criticism in the world for what people believe, even if they believe different things. But there is massive, legitimate criticism for those that say they believe, but do not follow it with obedience. And that problem has existed since the beginning of the church. It's what Jesus was warning about. Jesus had a half-brother named James. You think brotherly tensions are something? Can you imagine being the half-brother to the Son of God? Like, just for a second. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wasn't even actually a follower of Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. He came to understand who Jesus was and confess his faith after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, probably under the ministry of Paul. If you're struggling because you can't reach your family for Jesus, understand that Jesus sometimes couldn't reach his family for Jesus, and they had to come to him through other people. Once James believed, though, he did have a conviction, and it was about the obedience to the Word of God. He wrote in James 1, 22 to 25, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he looks at himself and goes in a mirror and goes away and forgets what he was like. He is saying that we are to be aware of the word of the Lord for our discussion purposes, the Bible, but to fail to obey it makes us as delusional as somebody that looks in the mirror, sees they're a train wreck and says, I look good. I'm on my way out the door. And then James contrasts that with one who's obedient. In verse 25, he says, But the one who looks at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed by his doing. 
And in reading the Bible, we find this rich treasure trove of direction for how to conduct our lives, how to regard our fellow man, our Christ-likeness in everyday relationships, how we maintain our family, what we do with our resources, uh, how we are faithful in our giving. Those topics are not mysterious. We have entire books of the Bible to help us navigate those things. We have passages like love your neighbor as yourself and passages about raising children, passages about the value of tithing and generosity. And all of these stories and passages are there for our reading. And if, you, and if you're looking to fulfill the hierarchy of our obedience, they are there for our doing too. How often do you read your Bible and what you do with that information will form what you do in life, and how people perceive Jesus through you. The Protestant movement historically, and the evangelical movement within the Protestant movement, has always had a very high value for Scripture, or high view of Scripture. In the 1500s, the Reformers began using a phrase, solo scriptura. Uh, we interpret that as only the Bible. It means much more than that. It means that scripture is the supreme authority in the church. Not that there are no other authorities within the church, that there are not leadership hierarchies, but all of them bow a knee to scripture and, and, and come under the written word of God. It means that scripture is sufficient for the church, meaning salvation can be found in these books of the Bible, and you don't need any outside traditions. You don't need the Apocrypha. You don't need Joseph Smith's writings. You don't need the further revelation of another leader to know who Jesus is. Solar Scripture also means that Scripture is clear to the church. This was the belief that while parts of the Scripture can be hard, there was more than enough that is clear to people that anyone who would read it could find salvation simply by reading it. It wasn't too hard for people. Protestants, though, and especially intellectual evangelicals, have come to think that you can do all these things and it is enough just to go through the motions. Solo scriptura is true, but just a rote reading of the Bible without a living relationship and communication and obedience to Jesus leads us to a dry heart that will not withstand the fires of life. This is how Rabbi Zacharias could teach the right things and maybe even believe the right things and do wrong things. It is good to answer the call to salvation. It is good to obey the writings of the scripture. But mama was right. It's always something. And some things arise for which you cannot find a Bible verse. You ever done that? You ever like, there's got to be something in here. And you just, you don't even know where to find. Even though you've answered the call to follow Jesus and you're walking out the scriptures to the best of your ability, there will time, be times you admit, I don't know what to do. Because mama's right. It's always something. We're at the beginning of the beginning with the bridge. Okay. We are like, some of you are going, is this what it's going to be? No. This like we are building the ramp to what will become the bridge. This is barely the beginning. And that really excites me. This expression of faith that we are being called to, that what we are being asked to build here has got to include an element of hearing God that doesn't just replicate what we've done before. It's got to have a new form, or we're literally wasting resources to show people that it can be done. And this is one of the things that I think he is going to require of us. God is inviting us into obedience, not in just his offer of salvation, and not just an obedience to his word, but a higher level of obedience where we are obedient to his voice the moment we hear it. Now, 
That is not strange, and that is not unbiblical. That is actually historical and scriptural. In addition to the written word, God's people have always looked to the day-to-day voice of God for direction in difficult times. In the book of Exodus, God is giving them the written law for the Hebrew people that will form the greater body of direction for them, how they will walk out their faith. And they're getting the word of the Lord in tablet form, but he also knows that in pursuit of the promised land, they're going to need in-the-moment guidance, okay? The very nature of of what we call the promised land leads us to think about it in an unbiblical way. We kind of think of the promised land like a five-year-old who wants a cheeseburger and tells his dad, Dad, you promised. Dad's just going to pull a cheeseburger out of his hat. But for the Hebrew people, the promised land was just like every other promise we get from God. It's an invitation to receive something that then we in turn have to contend for. And as they approach this fight, God doesn't tell them, please refer to the Ten Commandments. God, what about this? Please refer to the Ten Commandments. God, what about, please refer to the Ten Commandments. No, no. Although those commandments were sufficient, he also promises them something else. In Exodus 23... 20 to 22, he says, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. Don't let that word angel throw you off here, okay? This is a spiritual being, but it's not necessarily an angel like we think of as angels. God says, for my name is in him. This being is an Old Testament appearance of the person of Jesus. There's a theological term called Christophany, okay? A Christophany is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. If you want to you know, give your Bible study a buzz, drop that word in there. Well, you know, it's a Christophany, and then let them look it up. It's fun. No, a Christophany is the appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, and it happens a number of times. I'll give you just a couple. In Genesis 18, he appears to Abraham. There's a story of three men who visit Abraham, and one of them was God himself. We know this because the text says, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. There are other two were angels, but, but one of them was a, a physical manifestation of God. That's Jesus. It also happens in Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestles all night with what we've always thought of as an angel, or perhaps it's a weird dream. However, he goes on to say, God says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, But Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Afterwards, Jacob names the name Peniel. He says, for I've seen God face to face. That was a physical manifestation of Jesus. It was a Christophany. There's another one in Joshua 5 where a being appears to Joshua and tells him, take off your sandals of your feet for the place you're standing is holy. It's, It's a Christophany. He recognizes the commander of the armies of the Lord is Jesus. And in this case, what he's talking about in Exodus, it's a direction to the Hebrew people in how they respond to this being who appears to them. In Exodus 23, 22, he tells them, but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and I will be an adversary to your adversaries. Their moment-to-moment obedience that that being would guide them in day by day, moment by moment, would align them with God themselves, and their enemies would become God's enemies, and their adversaries would become God's adversaries. 
in the hierarchy of obedience that starts with salvation and adoration and then moves to obedience to the word of God, there is another realm of obedience that follows. It never contradicts the, the lower realms. It never contradicts God's word. But that level three is obedience to his voice on a day-to-day basis. It's not the grand call to salvation. It assumes you've already answered that. It's not the response to the written word of God, that baseline Christian expression. It assumes you're doing that. This is God speaking to you in a day-to-day basis, giving you direction in your inner man. Now, when we talk about this, this makes some people nervous. And what makes it nervous is they've always heard somebody tell some weird story about God speaking to them, you know? They've heard that story of, you know, I went to CVS to get some aspirin and the Lord told me to go down the shampoo aisle. When I got there, there was a young man and his name was the same as my cousin Leroy's middle name. And I knew it was the Lord speaking. And you're looking at them going, are you from the moon? You know, like, are really? That's the Lord led you down the shampoo aisle? And the, they might be a little crazy or maybe they're not crazy. Maybe they're just a terrible storyteller and it sounds weirder when they tell it. The real difficulty is it plants a seed of a lie in our hearts that says this. God does not talk to me. That's the lie that gets planted in our heart. And maybe he doesn't send you down the shampoo aisle. Who's to say he talked to them that way? But he does talk to us. And to believe that he doesn't talk to us is to say that he breaks his promises. John 16, 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, whatever he hears from God the Father, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And that's not a uniquely New Testament passage either. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 says, trust in the Lord with your heart and do not lean on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He will guide you. He will lead you. You can hear the voice of God in your day-to-day life and the level to which you obey and respond to it will determine how much you hear. Give you a couple of uh, quick tips here on just hearing the voice of God. Number one, Make sure to the best of your ability, you are being obedient in the lower levels of foundation, okay? I don't like calling them lower levels because that's actually not accurate. But the baseline ideas of salvation, of worship, don't misdirect your worship or your affection or your your financial giving into areas that, that God is not pleased with. It affects your sensitivity to the Lord's voice. If you're faithful in the little things, he will trust you with more. But when you have answered his call, and to the best of your ability, you're doing what what you're reading in the word, but you still need more direction, this is your next move. It's this question. When something arises, it's a five-second prayer. What do you think, Jesus? Lord, I'm, 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 I'm dealing with, what do you think, Jesus? And then you respond based on that just gentle impression that you might get. Some of you are thinking, what if, what if I get it wrong? What if you get it right? What if you get it right and the Lord speaks to you and you realize, oh, that was him. I have this idea that if you think you're walking in what he is telling you to do, and even if you get it wrong, his heart is warmed by your try. My kids regularly do what they think I would have wanted them to do, and it was the wrong thing. But you know what? That try matters to me. Like I can work with that try. I don't punish them for that try. This is responding to that still small voice that nudges you one way or the other. And it's easy to dismiss that voice because nobody else heard it. 
you know, your obedience, if you don't respond to that inner nudging from the Lord, nobody else is going to know except the Lord. And God, in his wisdom, is letting you live with that tension of knowing what he has spoken to you and responding or not responding. Our real struggle is not in hearing the nudge of God one way or the other. It's in responding to the nudge quickly. Because if we don't respond to the nudge, one of two things happens. The nudge quits or the nudge becomes a shove. And either way, you really wish you had responded to the nudge. We had friends in Tennessee who were big proponents of a, a parenting practice uh, or a practice among their children they called first-time obedience. And their point was they wanted to train their children to respond to things the first time so they would not have to say it over and over and over. Now, that's not to say they were control freaks. Their kids were actually pretty free-spirited, but they wanted to show them the wisdom and the joy that comes in obeying the first time, that when you say yes or respond the first time, it's actually greater freedom than in hearing the same direction five times and then obeying. And they were pointing out that when I tell you to do something and I want you to respond, there will maybe come a time where I tell you to do something and your safety is on the line. And the idea of first-time obedience is actually offensive to some people because it felt robotic to them. They take some element of pride that their kids question everything and ask why. And we should teach our kids to ask questions. But when they're standing in the road and a car is coming, would you prefer first-time obedience or a long explanation of why? which is better for everybody. Here's my personal goal with responding to the voice of God. This is what I, I don't get it right, but this is what I, I strive for. First time obedience. When I get a nudge, I want to respond as quickly as I can. Here's how it walks out. Two weeks ago, I'm reading the Bible and uh, I read a scripture and someone's name comes to mind in relation to the scripture that I'm reading. And it's a strong impression. I like, I really, they're on my mind. And there has been pain between this person and myself. And I feel a twinge of conviction about it. Uh, not an overwhelming amount. I can live with it, okay? I can, I can live with this conviction and go on about my life, but it's there. You know what I'm talking about, that sense of, oh, if I ignore this, it'll go away, but I don't know if I want to ignore it. Later that day, I'm driving down the road, and an idea pops into my mind, call that person. It was not a comfortable idea. It was not a self-generated idea. A long time has gone by with me not managing to call that person. But I did sense the Lord nudge me to call him. I had three options. When you feel that nudge from the Lord, you have three options. You can deny. You can say that wasn't God. Nobody's going to know. You can delay. You can say that was God, and I will do that at some point, which is like saying no or you can act. If I don't act, I deny or I delay. And so I grabbed the phone and I hit dial before I could talk myself out of it. Because I knew if I gave myself a little bit of a delay, I wouldn't do it. Phone rings. I'm a little nervous. We haven't talked for a while. It's been awkward. Voicemail. Voicemail. I leave a short message. Later, they call back. We had a great conversation. Like, it was really good. But beyond that, I had been obedient, and obedience to Jesus in little things opens the door to authority in bigger things. Why would Jesus allow me to build, help build the bridge if I can't even answer his call to make a phone call? Like, if, if I don't sense those nudges and respond to him, 
He's going to say, stay in preschool, little buddy. I got no, I have no use for you in bigger things. Have I ever got it wrong? Absolutely. But if I measure the number of times I've acted and it wasn't God versus the number of times I have delayed or denied and later found out that it was the Lord, I've got a lot of making up to do. And I think he's actually patient when we try and we get it wrong. This week, I want to encourage you, listen for that nudge and act. You will have uncountable opportunities to respond to things in a godly way. Some because of what you read in scripture and some just because he speaks to your heart. Write this verse down, put it everywhere. Psalm 119.60 says, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. That is what we're going for here. Lord, we want to know what you're saying to us and we don't want to delay. We want to maintain that practice of first-time obedience because in first-time obedience, we are building something that will withstand whatever comes our way because mama's right and it is always something. When it is something, I want to be able to respond to him in the right way. Father, we thank you that you offer us an opportunity to say yes to you in the realm of salvation and in exclusivity and relationship with you. And then you offer us this incredible book with so many lessons to learn and to follow. And then on top of that, you speak to our heart. And I ask in this coming week, as a people, that you would make us sensitive to those nudges of the Holy Spirit. Lord, those phone calls to make those people to reach out to, those disciplines that we need to cultivate in our heart. Lord, you said that when we're faithful with small things, that you'll allow us to be over great things. And our heart yearns for those, but we understand that to do that, we have got to be faithful in those little things. So set our sails for the slightest wind of your Holy Spirit and give us an opportunity to say yes over and over again and build confidence in hearing your voice. God, I ask that in coming weeks, we would have testimonies. We ask for stories. God, stories give us power to overcome. Give us stories within this body of first-time obedience to the slightest nudge of the Holy Spirit that turn to change things in radical ways in, in our lives and the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen.